I want you to think this morning, as we look toward the, the Christmas time, uh, about some of the gifts that you have received. Now, if you were to make a list of the all-time greatest Christmas gifts that you've ever received, I wonder what would be on your list. Some of you have gotten really big and expensive things for Christmas in the past. And you say, you know what? Listen, that one tops my list. Others would say, well, you know, it wasn't really expensive, and it wasn't big, and it wasn't flashy and shiny, but it's really one of my favorite gifts, you know, if I think about it. What would be on your list? Some funny things, I'm sure. You know, somebody got you something, well, that was a pretty good one. You know, I, I, they got me on that one. Or, or just meaningful. Or maybe there's a gift that you hang on to because it came from a, a special person in your life that maybe now is gone. Will you hang on to that because it reminds you of that person? takes you back to that Christmas, maybe the last one you spent together, whatever it may be. If I, if I were to go down my list, and, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, but there are, there are three gifts that I look at today that are very valuable to me that I've received at Christmas time. One is a Bible that I got when I was 17 years old from my parents at Christmas. And, and the Bible is nothing fancy, just a regular Bible. But it's one that I used a lot when I was in late high school through my college years and and I still have it, still use it. The binding is a little warm. The cover is, is not really wanting to hang on very much longer and, and so on. Maybe you've got a Bible like that. But boy, I've written all in that, just, just notes about the Scripture that I was reading and so on. And, and it's for my parents. And, and boy, it's a special, special Bible to me. Love it. I also, one Christmas, uh, to get away from the, the ultra-spiritual, sometimes you look at the pastor and think, well, yeah, you get a Bible every year, and I'm sure you read it cover to cover by January 1st, you know, and, you know, so I got a pair of insulated blue jeans one year. <clears throat> Maybe you know about insulated blue jeans. Now, I have to be honest with you, I'm a city boy. I didn't know anything about insulated blue jeans. My wife's uncle, who's a country boy, and a hunter and a fisherman and all that great stuff, which, uh, again, I would not insult a real hunter or fisherman by calling myself one. And so he got me, his name is Mike, and Uncle Mike, one year for Christmas, drew my name and got me a pair of insulated blue jeans. I said thanks and thought, insulated blue jeans? Are you kidding? I just wear blue jeans, you know, and I insulated. Well, these things are thermal insulated. Boy, I thought I'll, I'll say thanks, but I'll probably never wear those. You know, I mean, they're a little bulky. You know, they're not exactly stylish. I wear those things all the time. He got me those probably five years ago. That's the most valuable piece of clothing I own. Every time I go out, if you see me in the wintertime and I've got blue jeans on, nine times out of ten, it's those insulated blue jeans. I'll wear them every day. I don't care if they're dirty. I'll wear them every single day when it's cold. Those things are incredible. They're great, and they've lasted. They're wonderful. A couple of Christmases ago, I also got a very practical gift for me. I got a set of hair clippers. Some of you think, what do you need those for? I've been using them too much. Somebody asked me this morning, it looks like you're getting taller. I said, well, I'm just outgrowing my hair. That's just, you know. <clears throat> but I got a set of hair clippers. Now, let me tell you, for a guy who's losing his hair more rapidly than I'd like to admit, a set of hair clippers comes in handy. Because my hair no longer, at least if I can help it, gets kind of scraggly looking. I don't have to pay for haircuts anymore. It, it is the worst financial investment that a guy like me could do is to invest in a barber. Now, if you're a barber in here, a hairdresser, I love you, but it, it's throwing money away for me to go to you because look at it. It's not worth spending money on. 
There's nothing there. I'm not looking for style. I'm just looking for efficiency, you know? So, so I got this set of hair clippers. Listen, I use them once a week. Cut my own hair. If you don't like my hair, I got nobody to blame but myself, you know? And so it is a, a, a Bible, insulated jeans, and a set of hair clippers. Most valuable Christmas gifts anybody could give me because I use them all the time. They're extremely valuable to me. Maybe your list is something along those lines. Maybe it's completely different. But most of those gifts that you would list, I would imagine, come from someone who, who is a, a, a really good gift giver. You know anybody in your life like that? Maybe it's a grandmother, an aunt, a friend, a parent, a, a, a son or daughter, whatever it may be. But just a really good gift giver. And I don't mean that they just spend a lot of money on you. What I mean by being a, a really good gift giver is someone who knows you well, knows what you need even when you don't know what you need, knows what you desire, and they get gifts that are tailored just exactly to what you needed, what you wanted, what you were thinking about, what you wouldn't buy for yourself or couldn't buy for yourself, whatever it may be. Those are perfect gift gifts. My grandmother's not like that. I love getting gifts from my grandmother. She knows exactly the kind of stuff that she gets me. Sometimes I look at it and I think, where in the world did you come up with that? But it's perfect. Love it. Certainly you have those lists and, and those people in your life. If you think about it, it really would be absurd during this Christmas season to reject a gift from someone who loves you, someone who knows you, someone who is in on what you need even before you know you need it. Someone who tailors a gift perfectly to you. It would be absurd at Christmas to reject a gift like that. And yet, the majority of the people in our country and a good portion of the people who will come to church on a weekly basis do just that. Reject a gift from a perfect giver designed perfectly to meet every need that we know about and even the ones we don't. Christmas obviously centers on gifts. That's obvious. Turn on the television, go to the store, Whatever it may be during this time of year, you'll find Christmas centers on gifts. But there is no gift that's any greater than the gift of God becoming a man. This is obviously the true focus of Christmas. This is what gives it meaning. And over the next three weeks, I hope to show you from the Scripture some reminders maybe of things you already know, but, but what makes it important? What happened? when God became a man. We're going to look at that over the next three weeks. We're going to focus our attention on one particular section of a chapter in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bible handy, why don't you take it out and turn to the very first book in the New Testament, the very first chapter in that book, and the very first verse of that chapter. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now this morning, because of a variety of reasons, not the least of which is it would be really long, these verses won't show up on the screen. So if you got your Bible, and I would encourage you, listen, I want you to bring your Bible each week to church. If you've got one, bring it with you. If you don't have one, do not in any way feel ashamed. You let me know. If you can't afford a Bible, we will get you one. There is nothing that you possess that is greater in value than the Word of God. We want to put it in your hands. So look with me in Matthew chapter 1. And just look at the very first verse. <clears throat> My version reads the historical record. Some may say the book of genealogy. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's, there's verse 1. And what Matthew goes on to list is a bunch of people 
that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, and it's something like, maybe this is where your, your King James Version says begat. These are the begats. In my version, it says fathered, or was the son of, maybe another version. This is where the, the genealogical record of Jesus is listed. All of his ancestors. Now, if you pick up the New Testament for the very first time, and you go to the very first chapter in the very first book, and you look at the first few verses, you're going to think, what? That's sort of an odd way to start the greatest story that's ever been, ever been told and ever been written. Why would you start with a list of begats? Why would you start with a list of this person, father, this person, and so on down the line, and we wind up with Jesus Christ at the very end? Why on earth would you start the greatest piece of nonfiction literature ever written, the Gospels themselves, why would you start with the genealogy? And why would we spend three weeks on this genealogy? That may be even more odd to you than the fact that it's written there at the very beginning of Matthew. We're, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at, at all the spiritual truth we can find out of this genealogical record. Why on earth would we do that? It seems like an odd place to begin a book. It seems like an odd way, an odd place for us to focus. But I really believe there is more than meets the eye at first to this particular passage of Scripture. I think there's something to be learned that we might at first overlook, that we might not first think about. And so here we have Matthew, who begins with the family history of Jesus. He shows us what characters, literally sometimes just these characters that are in the story of Jesus, you'll notice as we go through this later on. This is the story of, uh, the, the record rather, of who is in the earthly family, the earthly heritage of Jesus. And it takes us all the way up, you'll see in verse 16, to Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. So, what happened? Matthew here is showing us what happened when Jesus was born. Now, one foundational truth we have to understand is that when Jesus was born, this was God becoming a man. This was not some ordinary baby. My wife and I recently had our fourth child. This was not just some routine birth at, at the hospital. This was God becoming a man. This was not a man who grew up just to be a great teacher or a good role model or a nice example to follow, or somebody who was, who was really helpful. It's not that at all. Though He is all of those things, He is so much more. It, this is what we're celebrating. This is Jesus coming to earth, God becoming a man. That is the celebration of Christmas. And that at its core is what Christmas is all about. So this is God coming to earth. Now some would say that the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, really doesn't matter. What difference does it make if He was just a man or if He was actually God in human flesh? Why on earth would that matter? Now the Scripture, of course, and Jesus Himself, they claim that Jesus was God. The Scripture does not lend itself to, to seeing Jesus as just a good teacher. Even the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of that day that had Him arrested, that convicted Him and crucified Him, did so primarily because he claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be God. The Scripture, you cannot read the New Testament and take away that Jesus was just a nice guy, just a good teacher. You're misreading the Scripture if you do that. The Scripture claims nothing less for Jesus than the fact that he was God in human flesh. So why does that even matter? I'm not going to try to give you a, a theological lesson today that will bore you to tears and so on like you might think one would. But I want to give you, just as we sort of dig into this a little bit, what are some of the implications? Why does it matter that Jesus was, in fact, God? Because Jesus is God, we have a real knowledge of God. You don't need to look any further to find out what God is like than Jesus Christ. You look at Jesus Christ, you see God. 
You want to know what God is like, what He wants you to be, who He wants you to be, and what He demands of you? You look at Jesus Christ. You don't need to look any further than that. Jesus was God. We need only to look at Him to discover God. Because Jesus is God, redemption is available to all of us. God Himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, died for our sins. God Himself did. Because Jesus is God, God and humanity have been reunited because He came to earth. God didn't send an angel or some other human, but He Himself came to bridge the gap caused by our sin. God Himself came. Because Jesus is God, we can worship Him then as God. He deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. Jesus being God matters. But He wasn't just God and came in some ghost-like figure and floated through the earth and moved through walls and that sort of thing. That's not who He was. He was both God and man, two natures in one person. Some folks would call Him the God-man. That He was both at the same time, all the time, while He was on earth and still remains today. So the humanity of Jesus also matters. He was God, but He was also man. Because Jesus was a man, His death is really effective for us. He was one of us dying for us. And that, that is effective, obviously. Only He could offer that true sacrifice for our sins. Because Jesus is, was also a man, He can truly sympathize with us. He faced everything we face. Life is very hard sometimes. Being human is sometimes a very lonely experience. Sometimes you think that you're the only one who's facing what you're going through. You've been there? Sometimes you think that no one else has ever dealt with all this stuff that you have that's going on in your life. The Bible makes it clear that because Jesus became a man, because God came to earth, that He can sympathize with us. He knows what you're dealing with. He promised to never leave you alone. There is someone who knows exactly what you're feeling. Someone who's experienced all the emotions that you're going through. Someone who's faced temptation just like you're facing it. There's someone there for you. Because Jesus was a man, He also demonstrated what is the true nature of humanity. Meaning that that He showed us what is possible if a person will depend on God and live a life of prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Will we be sinlessly perfect? No. Jesus showed us what it's like to depend on God the Father. To live life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so as a result of that, He can be our example. He was perfect, but He still lived on earth. He still had issues. But He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit at all times. And also because Jesus was a man, He showed us that God is near to us. Some of us view God as this distant, far-off judge. Someone who doesn't care until things maybe go wrong, and then He swoops in to fix it or whatever it may be. But Jesus showed that God is not so far off from humanity. He came near. He, He came to us to demonstrate His love, to show that He cares about every detail of our lives. Jesus was both God and man. And both of those have huge implications, as we've just seen. So at Christmas time, we're celebrating the fact that God did become a man, that He came to love us, to die for us, to show us how to live. He came also with specific purposes and a specific title that Matthew highlights. Look with me in verse 1 again. The historical record of Jesus, what? Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now look at verse 16. It says, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the what? The Messiah. That word there, Messiah, and the word Christ are synonymous. They really mean the same thing. It is a title initially given to Jesus Christ that becomes his identity. And we now may just call him Christ. 
They just call him Messiah. Some call him Jesus Christ. But originally it was simply a title given to the person who would fulfill all that Jesus did. Now there's a lot wrapped up in this title. As you well know, if you've ever had a job, there's a lot more that goes with the job description than the job title. Now, this morning, I, I certainly don't mind it anyway, uh, but I realize there's a lot more that goes with the job title, job description of pastor than just the title. Some of you think, well, the job title of pastor, boy, I'd like that. Sit in your room all day long there in the office, read the Bible. Just sort of meditate and pray. Have God visit you in person on a daily basis. And then you get up Sunday morning, you get to just preach and tell everybody what you think and that sort of thing. It's just sort of an angelic experience, isn't it? Well, there's more that goes with the job description than the job title. Wonderful things, most of them. And sometimes not so wonderful. Just part of the job. You understand what I mean? You've had a job like that, I'm sure. Where your job title did not list the job description. And you say, oh, hold on just a second. If I knew this was part of the job description, I'm not sure I want that title. Some of you are managers in your particular company. Now, that means a lot of different things. Some of you are in, in that role where not only are you getting things done, but you're managing people and all their issues they come with. They come to you about everything. Some of you look at the person who's the CEO of your company and say, boy, I like that title. All they get to do is sit around and tell people what to do all day long. I can sit in my office and do that. But you don't know all that goes with the description that's attached to that title. Boy, sometimes... We, we, we don't know all that's included. Jesus, on the other hand, he knew exactly what his job title implied. He knew exactly what the title of Messiah, Christ, entailed. That word Messiah means anointed one. It means the one who was promised to come for Israel to be the deliverer for the Jews. The one who would restore them. The one who would give them freedom from their oppressors, victory over their enemies. Anointed one then points to the three anointed roles in the Old Testament. These were three separate roles in the Old Testament that Jesus would ultimately fulfill. There's the role of prophet, the role of priest, the role of king. All of these in different passages of Scripture we see are anointed for their role to be set apart and empowered to do their, their specific job. So Messiah, this one who was promised, was to be anointed. We see this at the baptism of Jesus. Anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill all three wrapped up into one, all three of the roles that were anointed roles in the Old Testament. So, the New Testament makes it clear that our guiding truth then, as you'll see, we'll roll through here in just a second, is this, that when God became a man, He became our prophet, our priest, and our king. When God became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, He became all of those things wrapped up into one, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Now, I hope to show you very quickly this morning what's wrapped up in all three of those roles. Now, we can't pick and choose which of these we like about Jesus and which we don't. He is all of these, all the time, all at once. So when you think of the role of prophet, his role here is the role of teacher. His role as prophet is the role of teacher. In Joel chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 30, it is prophesied that the Messiah would be a great teacher. And certainly we know from the parables of Jesus, from his other moments of teaching, and from the fact that he was recognized by his disciples and others, he was, in fact, a great teacher. No question about that. And you may say, well, wait a minute. Now, now you say the word prophet, and then you equate that with teacher. What are you talking about? Well, if you actually look at the Old Testament, and you go to the, the, the function of the prophets, we'd probably at first think, well, they're just predicting the future. 
when they just sit and they get a word from God and they tell everybody, here's what's going to happen, you know, 20, 30, 100, 500 years from now. You just watch. It'll happen. Certainly that was included. But the majority, the bulk of their role, their function mainly was sort of like the modern-day preacher or teacher in the church. They would stand before the people on behalf of God and teach and proclaim His words to the people, instructing them on how they should live, telling them what would happen if they don't live that way, and continually over and over preaching and teaching the people. That was the main role of the prophet. And so Jesus comes, obviously, in that role. Jesus came teaching, declaring the truths of God. John calls Him the very Word of God. He is the revelation of God. And because He is God in human flesh, His teaching then is perfect. It's flawless. There's absolutely nothing wrong at all with His teaching. It is flawless. Because it's flawless and perfect, it's also trustworthy. Difficult sometimes to trust and put into practice the Word of God. Because everything in culture, everything in your mind and your heart may battle against you to say, no, no, no. That was written so long ago. It really doesn't apply today. But it's trustworthy because it comes directly from God. You can put it into practice and trust that it will accomplish what it says it will accomplish. The words of Jesus, the words of Scripture are also life-giving. There's a moment in the Gospels where many people begin to walk away from Jesus. And He looks at His disciples and He says, Are you going to leave too? And Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, steps back and He says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, he tells Jesus. The words of Jesus, the words of Scripture, have the power to develop and bring in you eternal life if you believe the one that gives them. Words of Scripture, the words of Jesus, his teaching is valuable. Nothing you possess more valuable than that. It is correcting, certainly, convicting, absolutely, but it's also encouraging. It has the power to meet your needs right where you are to lift your spirits, to build into your soul things that need to be there. His role as teacher, our response then is to listen and obey. Our response is to listen and obey. It sounds extremely simple because it is. And I really believe that the majority of the problems that we have in our country, in our families, in our jobs, wherever you may go in your life, I really believe the majority of the problems arise Because we are not people of the Word. We are not folks who understand and love and hunger for and apply the Scripture. Do I say that as an accusing way toward you? No, I'm just saying in general. Wouldn't you agree that that many of the problems we have could be avoided, could be dealt with, could be handled if we would simply apply what God has said in our lives? Now listen, I say that teaching myself as well. The majority of the problems I have are because I've drifted in some way from the Word of God. I've not applied it. Does that mean if you apply the Word of God that you'll never have another problem? That's not what it means at all. But I really believe that the majority of problems we have come because we don't apply the Scripture. So He is our prophet, our teacher. He's also, at the same time, and most folks would like to leave Him as just a good teacher. Because then we don't have to do anything with Him. Then we can, well, yeah, He's a great teacher. But He's also our priest. He is also our priest. And His role in this job, this title of priest, is to be our substitute. He is our substitute. The one who makes a sacrifice on behalf of sinners. The Old Testament priest, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, it was called, in the, in the tabernacle. And he would make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people to atone for their sins for that year. But it's interesting, they went back every single year 
The Old Testament sacrificial system was simply set up to point to Jesus Christ, the ultimate and final sacrifice for sins. The Old Testament sacrifices always had to be redone. Here's an imperfect priest going on behalf of imperfect people to present really an imperfect sacrifice that did not fully do what Jesus obviously did on the cross. The Messiah himself was predicted in 1 Samuel chapter 2 to be a faithful, eternal, perfect priest. And by his death, Jesus became our high priest. The irony is the priest himself became the sacrifice. The priest gave his life for the sinner. The sinner deserves to die. The priest who Jesus, in this case, was perfect and sinless, did not deserve to die, became the substitutionary death, dying in our place. And as our high priest and our substitute, he provides atonement or covering for our sin. He provides a great biblical word here, propitiation. You may see that in your translation. You know what that means? It means that, that he satisfied or cooled off the wrath of God towards sin. Why? Because Jesus paid for it. Those who believe no longer have the fear of facing the wrath of God. Those who do not, however, face certainly the wrath of God upon sin in the time of judgment. He also provides redemption, a freedom from the power and penalty of sin. He provides reconciliation. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are at peace with God. You're on His side. He said He's welcomed you into the family. You're no longer enemies of God, but He calls you sons and daughters. He's provided, he's provided reconciliation. He also provides cleansing from the inside out. He touches every single part of you. He provides forgiveness once and for all of our sins. You realize that at the cross, Jesus provided forgiveness for all your past sins, all your present sins, and all your future sins. He provided forgiveness for all of that, all at once, and once and for all. He also, through His death as our substitute, provides access directly to God the Father. He calls Himself the door, the way. There is no need to go through any human to get to God. I want you to hear me on that. As your pastor, I love you. But you don't have to go through me to get to God. And if you do, guess what I'm going to tell you? You go directly through Jesus Christ to get to God. I do not serve as your priest. I do not serve as your door, as your way to Jesus Christ. No human can. Jesus Christ alone serves as that. The Gospels make it clear. Hebrews itself. You want to, you want to read about the priesthood of Jesus Christ? Go read the book of Hebrews. Amazing. All the doors are kicked down. Jesus is your way to God. Go through Him. Go directly to Him. So He is our high priest. He serves as our substitute. Our response then is simply to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Come to grips with the severity of sin. But also at the same time, come to grips with the extent and the depth of the love of Jesus for you. Your sin runs deep. My sin runs deep. It infiltrates every part of my being. But the love of Jesus is the trump card that cleanses all of that away, and by His death, I am forgiven. So my response then is to turn from the old, to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and to give Him my life. That's my only response to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. To receive and enjoy the free gift of salvation through my faith. So He's our prophet, our teacher. He's our, our priest, our substitute. And finally, He is our King. And his role here is very simple. It is ruler. His role is ruler. In Isaiah, there are several chapters. Chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, 
chapter 14, 24, 32, 33, all of these chapters in Isaiah point to the Messiah as the coming ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Matthew's genealogy, interestingly enough, traces the heritage of Jesus through King David, proving that he has the rightful place to rule. He has the rightful place as king. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. He is ushering in the kingdom of God. And then in chapters 5 through 7, the king, as a symbol of his authority, sits down before his followers and gives his law. Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the New Testament shows that Jesus is the ruler of the earth, the universe, and certainly the ruler of the hearts of believers. Revelation shows that King Jesus will one day return as a conqueror of sin, conqueror of evil. He is our ruler. Our response then is to serve and to worship. Our response to His role as King is to serve Him and worship Him. The New Testament, particularly Paul, points out that we are slaves to Christ. It's ironic that true freedom is found only in becoming a slave of Jesus Christ. It sounds really ironic. It sounds almost counterintuitive. But the truth is, in your life, you're going to be a slave to Jesus or a slave to something else. That's it. You have two choices. If you're a slave to Jesus Christ, you are given forgiveness, eternal life, freedom, redemption, atonement, all those things. You are set free to be who God really created you to be. If you choose to be a slave to anything else, then you are bound up by your sin, though you may not know it. You are still under the wrath of God, though you may not want to believe that. You are truly in bondage. Only, only by being a slave of Jesus Christ can you find true freedom. The Bible makes that clear. We are His slaves to serve Him. We are to serve Him completely and wholeheartedly, all the time, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Not just on Sunday. Not just when we think about it. Not just when we have a problem. Wholeheartedly, all the time. As our ruler, we are His subjects, His slaves. He deserves our service. He also deserves our worship. Jesus would say later in the Gospels that God wants our worship in spirit and in truth. I, I hope that this week, my prayer for you this week, as it pertains to the worship of our King, is that you will have a moment, not where you force emotion, not, not where you trump something up, but where God gets not only to your head, where, yes, Lord, I agree, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, I agree with that. And yes, I know, Jesus, that you're the Son of God who came to earth at Christmas time 2,000-something years ago, and you died later on at Easter whenever that was, and you, yeah, I understand all that. But that those truths will then get into your heart and affect not only your intellect, but also your emotions. Spirit and truth. The truth is, yes, our intellect needs to connect with the truth of Scripture, but spirit. God needs to stir our emotions so that we are not passionless Christians who simply go through the world acknowledging some truth about Jesus Christ, but never having it truly affect the hearts. If you're anything like me, you're probably at many times more of an intellectual Christian than an emotional Christian. I'm somewhat skeptical of, of raw emotion all the time. 
But Jesus says that there is a perfect combination of both. But through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you can connect with the Lord through worship, not only in your mind, but in your heart. One of my prayers for us as a church is that we will not only acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is, but it will affect us. That when we come together, we won't just sing, but we'll worship. That we won't just hear the Word of God, but it will stir our hearts. So that when that connects, the, the will, the mind, the emotions, all that connects to where who God wants us to be. And I really believe that in our response and worship to the King, that it must be all of those things. So, Jesus is the Messiah, Matthew tells us here in chapter 1. His title is Messiah, and it consumed him. Absolutely consumed him. His life, his death, his resurrection, all about his role as Messiah. And likewise, the call to follow him is a call to be consumed by him. Absolutely consumed. So this Christmas, we celebrate the gift of God becoming a man. We celebrate the one who teaches us, the one who died for us, the one who rules forever. The truth be told, many of us, if not most, and maybe even all, have heard this before. We, we've, we've heard it before, and it makes sense, intellectually, that God became a man in the form of Jesus Christ. But there may be, for some of us, for many of us, for most of us, maybe even for all of us, the need. For those truths not only to be in our head, but to also be embraced by our hearts. And for God to stir us in a brand new way. In closing, I'd like to read to you from a great author, Max Lucado. Just a small section of, of his book called God Came Near, about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And he says this, what God did makes sense. It makes sense that Jesus would be our sacrifice because a sacrifice was needed to justify man's presence before God. It makes sense that God would use the old law to tutor Israel on their need for grace. It makes sense that Jesus would be our high priest. What God did makes sense. It can be taught, charted, and put into books on systematic theology. However, why God did it is absolutely absurd. When one leaves the method and examines the motive, the carefully stacked blocks of logic begin to tumble. That type of love isn't logical. It can't neatly be outlined in a sermon or explained in a term paper. Even after generations of people had spit in his face, he still loved them. After a nation of chosen ones had stripped him naked and ripped his incarnated flesh, he still died for them. And even today, after billions of people have chased power, fame, and wealth, He still waits for them. It is inexplicable. It doesn't have a drop of logic nor a thread of rationality, and yet, it is that very rationality that gives the gospel its greatest defense. Only God could love like that. The only thing, He says in closing, more absurd than the gift is our stubborn unwillingness to receive it. The perfect gift, tailored for exactly what you need and what you don't even know you need, is Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. It is absurd to think that God loves us that much. It makes no sense. We are the ones who are the sinners. We are the ones who are rotten and don't deserve love. 
Just be honest. Only God can love like that. And the only thing He says more absurd than, than His love is our stubborn unwillingness to receive it. There is a, an inf- infinitely famous verse that John writes, quoting Jesus. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. I can't fully make sense of the love of God. And I can't fully make sense of those who reject it. Because it is real. And He demonstrated it by coming to earth to become our prophet, our teacher, our priest, our substitute, our king, our ruler, to live and to die for us. It's the love of God that compelled Him to do all that. And the question then remains, how will we respond to Him? How will we respond to Him as teacher? Will we listen and obey? As priest, as our substitute, will we repent and believe today? And as our king, as our ruler, will we serve Him and worship Him? What will our response be? Won't you bow your head with me as we close? We come to our time of closing this morning. There may be a response that you need to to have this morning. Maybe a time of prayer that you need to spend. Maybe to come down front and say, you know what, I I need to respond to Jesus in this way. I, I need to give my life to Him, the One who gave His life for me, and I'm going to do that this morning. Maybe there's a step of obedience in your life, whatever it may be that you need to commit to this morning. Jesus is our prophet, our teacher. We need to listen and obey. He's our priest, our substitute. Let's repent and believe. And he is our king, our ruler. Serve him and worship him. His love is absurd, it may seem. But more absurd than that is the stubborn unwillingness to receive it. Receive his love, his forgiveness today. Commit your life to him. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth. God, thank you for becoming a man, but still being God. Thank you for being our prophet, our priest, our king. The one who loves us, the one who died for us. Stir our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand. Stir our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.